would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. We're starting in verse 16 because we ended in verse 15 last week. So we're picking up where we left off in the Gospel. If you're using the red Bibles and the chairs around you, you're not sure where John chapter 3 is. The page is listed there for you. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, I'm going to read down through verse 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father, these are very familiar words to us. So we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we might see what you want us to see from them. Help us to learn new things. Above all, help us to see Jesus. And as we do, Father, we pray you would fill us with a greater sense of love because of your grace to us and a greater desire to live as you've called us to live according to your word. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week... Pastor Steve was taking you through the first 15 verses of chapter 3, and you were looking at the story of Jesus' conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Jews, and as such, he would have had a very deep understanding of the content of God's Word. He would have put a lot of time and energy and focus into doing everything he could to keep God's Word and beyond. And Jesus threw Nicodemus for a loop. He said something that Nicodemus couldn't understand. He said, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus took what Jesus was saying literally, and he was trying to figure out how can that happen? How can a man be born again? Jesus tried to explain it more to Nicodemus, but he still didn't get it. And Jesus chastised him, here a leader a Pharisee who wasn't understanding the very basic foundation of the gospel. Jesus even used Old Testament imagery and stories to make the point that he was trying to make. That if you want to have eternal life, if you want to get out of perishing, you have to believe in Jesus. And that's where things were left off. At the end of 15 last week, the very next verse is John 3.16. Probably the most quoted Bible verse in the history of the world. 
think it's likely maybe the most well-known verse in the world, even by those who who are not Christians. But in the context that it's in, it's a continuation of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, not everybody agrees that that's the case. Some people believe that Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus ends at verse 15. And that what we have in verses 16 through 21 is actually John giving us some interpretation of what Jesus had said. Now, it does, the the text changes as we go from verse 15 to verse 16. It goes to, to the third person. But even so, Jesus spoke of himself in the third person often. I think there are other good reasons to believe that this is Jesus speaking. It's the continuation of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. Because the content of these verses are still the word of God. And regardless of whether these are Jesus' words or John's words about Jesus' words, I would suggest to you that verses 16 through 29 are some of the most foundational, crucially important, and life-changing words in the entire Bible. Jesus goes on to further explain to Nicodemus and to all of us in these verses that if you want to have eternal life, if you want to be with Jesus forever... If you want to not perish in hell for all eternity, then you have to believe in Jesus. Now that leads us to a few questions. I mean, first of all, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus? What what does that entail? Secondly, why do we need to believe in Jesus? And thirdly, what happens when we do? So let's look at those three questions and see what the text tells us in answering these questions. The first is, what does it mean to actually believe in Jesus? Now, before we dive into thinking about what that means, I want you to notice what is God's motivation? As we look at verses 16 and 17, what is God's motivation? What is God's basis for providing eternal life to us? What is his motivation? What does it say? The beginning of verse 16, God so loved the world. That's his motivation. That's his basis for providing eternal life for some. God so loved the world. Now, as I was thinking about that this week and reading various commentators, I I recognize that in myself and probably in you as well, we tend to think about that quantitatively. And the quantity of God's love. God loved the world so much. And we think about it in terms of the quantity of God's love. But that isn't really the sense of the Greek here in in John chapter 3. It's actually more of a sense of the quality of God's love. This is how much God loved the world. And how much did God love the world? How did God love the world? He loved the world by giving Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus coming to pay for the sins of his people. That's the quality of God's love. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's love for his people. God shows us his love by making the ultimate sacrifice. His own son dying and taking on the wrath of God. God was willing to sacrifice Jesus and have him endure the full weight of the perfect and divine justice of God. Why? So that we could have our sins paid for. We could have God's wrath turned away from us forever. 
and we could have righteousness credited to our accounts. It was the greatest sacrifice ever made. And why did God do it? Because God so loved the world. That's the motivation that he had. That's the basis for it. And because God loved the world, because he demonstrated that love in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if we believe in him, we get eternal life. And so that brings us to the question, what does it mean to really believe in Jesus? I think there are several parts of what it means to believe in anything, particularly today we're thinking about believing in Jesus. The first is you have to know about what you're believing in. You have to know the the facts. You have to know the details. Who was Jesus? What did he do on earth? What did he accomplish? Why did he have to do those things? These basic truths about who God is, about who Jesus is, about who we are, about the necessity that we have of needing someone to die for our sins. We need to know those facts. We need to understand those facts. And we get the knowledge of those facts from the scriptures. Everything that we need to know and understand about faith is in the Bible. So part of what it means to believe in Jesus is to know and to understand the truths, the facts, the doctrines about God, Jesus and our condition. But that's not all that it means to believe in Jesus. Not just knowing the truth, not just knowing the facts, not just understanding the story. It involves also giving assent to those truths. R.C. Sproul put it this way. It's an assurance or a conviction that certain propositions are true. We don't just know facts about Jesus. We also are to believe that they are true. We don't just know and understand that Jesus claimed to be fully man and fully God. We actually believe that he is. We don't just know the story of Jesus and how he willingly went to the cross to die for the sins of his people. We actually believe that he did so. So believing in Jesus involves knowing and understanding truth, but actually believing that that is true. But even that's not all of what it means to believe in Jesus. It involves not just saying that we believe the truth of Scripture, It's not just a mental agreement to the facts, but it's committing ourselves personally to those truths. It is resting on those truths. It is relying on those truths so much that it actually changes us. And John Calvin put it this way. These doctrinal truths not only are known and understood and believed, but they take root in our heart. We believe them in such a way, we are resting on the truth of them in such a way that it actually changes us. Resting entirely and completely on the truths and beliefs of Jesus. I have a pastor friend that teaches the communicants class, the the class to the young people as they get ready to become members of the church. And he he is, when he gets to trying to help them understand this aspect, what does it mean to really believe in Jesus? Yes, you need to know the facts. Yes, you need to confess that you believe them. But you have to be resting on those in such a way that you are actually changed. When he tries to get them to understand that, he does something a little bit unusual, a little bit unorthodox in the class. He has them, he has the young people pushed back from the table and then he clears off their notebooks and their Bibles and their pens and he actually gets up on the table and lays down. And he said the kids are usually going crazy at that point because the pastor is lying on the table in front of them. And then he begins to ask them some questions as he's lying there. He asked them, what am I doing? 
something, you're lying on the table. Okay? Is there any part of me that's not resting on the table? No. Am I being completely held up by this table? Yes. Am I trusting that this table is going to hold me? Yes. And he says, that's the picture. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. Resting and relying on Jesus in every part of our life, not just for our eternal life, but in every aspect of our lives. Not resting and relying on anything else or anyone else more than we rest and rely on the truths that we believe about Jesus. Believing in Jesus means knowing the truth, knowing the facts of the Christian faith, believing them and trusting them that they are true and resting on him completely. Being a Christian is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just what happens in our mind. It also is about what we believe in our hearts. When our elders interview new people for membership into our church, on a regular basis, there's a question that works its way in various uh, ways into the, the question, the dialogue that we're having with the person that we're talking to. And, and in essence, what we're asking is, what does a relationship with Jesus look like for you? We are looking to see, do they know the truths of Jesus? Do they, do they understand those basic truths? And we're also listening. We want to hear them say that they don't just know the facts, but they actually believe them to be true. But we also want to know what difference does that make in your life? Are you so resting on Jesus? Are you so relying on the truths that you say you believe that it actually is a relationship, a fellowship, a communion? With your Savior. I ask you the same question. Are you resting in that way with your Savior? Or maybe you're someone who only has mentally understood the facts of Christianity. Or, or maybe you've even gone so far as to say, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't just know the facts. I actually believe them to be true. But you're not resting on them. You're not relying on them in such a way as that they grip your heart and your life is changed as a result. It's actually an important question for us to be asking ourselves. Because we come to the second question, which is why we need to believe in Jesus. Look at what we read in verse 18. Whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here's the first reason why we need to believe in Jesus. Because those who don't believe in Jesus are condemned. The Greek word means judged. In other words, the verdict has been rendered. And the verdict is guilty. The verdict is condemned. The verdict is judged apart from Christ. Do you know what the most popular, longest running, most lucrative daytime TV shows have been in the 80s and 90s and 2000s? The People's Court in Judge Judy. It really is amazing. You can look it up. The facts are there. They, they are the earliest reality TV. They are actual judges, Judge Wapner and Judge Judy. It's an actual small claims court and actual court cases come and are filmed. 
There's a plaintiff, there's a defendant, and they agree that whatever problem they're having, whatever beef they have, whatever disagreement they have, they're going to let the judge in front of them decide as the audience watches. The plaintiff makes the case. Judge Wapner or Judge Judy break in and ask questions and make comments. And then the the defendant gets to make a, a statement and gets to respond. And the judge breaks in and asks questions and makes comments. And then it comes to the end. And something like this is said. The judgment is for the plaintiff or for the defendant or some combination of that. And when that is stated, it's over. It's done. It's been adjudicated. And then they leave and go out into the hallway and get interviewed by the TV crew. And that's some of the most popular entertainment TV for decades. What we're talking about here in John chapter 3, the condemnation that Jesus is talking about here is not going to be a popular entertainment for people. Those who do not believe in the name of the only Son of God, Jesus Christ, will stand condemned, not by Judge Wapner, not by Judge Judy, but by the Creator of the universe, the Lord God Almighty. Now, some of you are astute. You're looking at the text carefully, which you should be, and you're noticing in verse 17. But it says that Jesus didn't come to condemn. And that's right. When Jesus came the first time, his mission, his purpose was not to bring condemnation. It was to bring salvation to the people who would believe in him. But that doesn't mean that condemnation didn't come as a consequence. Biblical scholar and Leon Morris, uh, biblical scholar Leon Morris puts it this way. It is not the purpose of the shining of the sun to cast shadows, but shadows are inevitable. The shadows are, so to speak, the other side of the sunshine. So it is with the condemnation and the coming of the Son of God. He did not come in order that people be condemned. But there are great moral issues involved, and those who refuse salvation thus condemn themselves. The condemnation is is as real as the salvation. Here's the first reason why we need to believe in Jesus, because apart from Jesus, we condemn ourselves. We see another reason as well. We need to believe in Jesus because apart from Jesus, we remain people who love the darkness and hate the light. That's what we see in verses 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Darkness in the Bible is almost always a bad place and a bad thing. It means evil. It means wicked things. It means loving sin and and hiding our, our shameful things that we do. Pastor and commentator Rick Phillips said this, In general, cause of unbelief is not intellectual or cultural, it's moral. People do not want to submit to God because they love their sins and are not willing to give them up. Phillips then went on to quote, Aldous Huxley. Now that name may not be familiar to all of you. He's one of the most well-known atheists who lived in the 20th century. He spent his entire life speaking out against Christianity, speaking out against the Bible, and trying to put forth a worldview that life is meaningless, 
Now, I want you to listen to what Huxley himself says. This is, this is stunning. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from certain political and economic systems and liberation from a certain system of morality. He's speaking of Christianity. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able, without much difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. That is, that is chilling. Essentially, what he is saying is, I wanted to live my life however I wanted. I didn't want to be bound by the Christian ethics. So I created, I crafted a view of the world with no meaning so that I could do what I wanted and be free. And, and maybe that's not that surprising to us coming from an atheist. But brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are people who are walking in darkness, we are essentially living exactly what Huxley said. In those moments, we are functioning atheists. We are saying, I'm going to live how I want. I don't care about anything else. If we're not resting and relying on Jesus in every area of our lives, we're not far from what he was saying. We need to believe in Jesus because by nature, we are people who love the darkness and hate the light of truth and holiness. But there's a third reason why we need to believe in Jesus, not only because without him we stand condemned, not only because without him we'll remain people of darkness who hate the light, but because without him we perish. Isn't that what Jesus says in verse 16? He says if you believe in him, you won't perish. Well, the obvious consequence of that is that if you don't believe in him, you will perish. And the word perish that he uses means to be in ruin. Destruction, to be left out, to be lost. Remember the context here of these verses is this conversation going on with Nicodemus. And in that conversation, Jesus went back into the Old Testament and he grabbed some Old Testament stories to help Nicodemus understand what he was saying about himself being the promised one who was there. And you saw last week in verse 14, he went back to the story in Numbers 21 of God's people being impatient with God, of complaining and talking against him. And so God, in response, sent fiery serpents into their midst and many were bitten and many died. Now, why do you think God used a serpent? Serpents in the Bible almost never are a good thing. They have a bad connotation and they've had that bad connotation from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan himself came to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. Serpents represent evil. They represent when sin entered the world. And as we understand that, as we understand that that's the, the story that Nicodemus is thinking about as Jesus is talking about this and talking about perishing, we understand that ultimately what it means to perish is to suffer spiritual death, to have spiritual ruin. As I was thinking about that this week, a hymn that we sang just a couple Sundays ago, Jesus I Come, came to mind, and particularly the fourth verse, out of the fear 
In the dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into the joy and light of thy home, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of the depths of a ruin untold, into the peace of thy sheltering fold, ever thy glorious face to behold, Jesus, I come to thee. This is why we need to believe in Jesus. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus, those who refuse to believe in him, are left with fear and dread of the tomb. They will not come into the joy and light of Jesus' home. They will remain in the depths of a ruin untold. They will not get to enjoy the peace of his sheltering fold or ever get to behold his glorious face. This is why we need to believe in Jesus. Without him, we are condemned. We remain people who love darkness and hate the light and we will perish apart from Christ. But the good news is that by believing in him, we will not perish. We will have eternal life. This is why it's important that we believe in Jesus. That brings us to our final question. What happens when we do? Well, the first thing is obvious. Jesus says in verse 16 and also in verse 14 that when we believe in him, we get eternal life. We are freed from condemnation and we have the promise of being with him in the new heavens and the new earth. We'll spend eternity with him. I think one of the most frustrating aspects of being a Christian is the fact that God chose not to give us very much information about what heaven is going to be like. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a whole book in the Bible that all it was doing was just telling us all of the details of what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like? I don't know why God chose not to do that. Maybe it's simply to give us a greater yearning and desire for it. But the things that we do know from what the scriptures tell us are wonderful. We will get new and perfect bodies. There will be no temptation and no sin. We will know and be with one another. We will lack nothing. We will be free from the curses that we got as a result of the fall. We will have perfect communion and fellowship with Jesus. And he will give us good work and rest and recreation to do for all eternity. It's going to be so good that the Apostle Paul went on to say that all of the hard things that we have in this life, and we have hard things, all of the difficult things, all of the, 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 the pressures that we feel, all of the, 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 the sickness that we deal with in body and in mind. Paul says when we get to heaven, those things will pale, pale in comparison to the glory that we are going to experience. And how do you get all of that? You get it when you believe in Jesus. It's a gift that we're given. It's an eternal gift. It's eternal life. That's not the only thing that happens when we believe in Jesus. We not only get eternal life, we also get a changed life. When someone truly and genuinely believes in Jesus and becomes a Christian, puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are changed. Not just their eternal destiny, but how they live here and now. That's what we see in verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People who come to the light, Jesus says, do what is true. They do good works. It's in contrast to verse 20. The people who love the darkness, what do they do? They do evil. They do wicked things. People who come into the light do good works. The good news of the gospel 
God's grace is that it changes us in every aspect of our lives. How we think, how we talk, what we do, in our homes, in our families, as students, in our vocations, in our recreations, in our free time, and how we spend our money. Those who are in the light, their lives are changed as people of the light. And so for people who are in the light of the gospel, the laws of God, the ethical teachings of the New Testament are to be a joy to us, a blessing to obey. The appeal of living in the darkness over time lessens its grip on us. Over time, sins that once captivated our hearts and our minds begin to become less and less interesting to us. Using the means of grace of growing in our faith and being strengthened in our faith becomes more and more important to us. Over the course of time, we become more and more the person that God has created us to be. And it's more and more satisfying to us. So the fact that by believing in Jesus, we are changed, that should be something that we want, that we desire, that we long for, and that we pray for. What happens when we believe in Jesus? Well, we get eternal life. We get a changed life. But the third thing and the last thing is that God's glory becomes more and more important to us. That God's glory would be first and foremost. We start being more concerned with God receiving all the glory than ourselves. Did you notice how verse 21 ended? Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People who have come to the light, people who believe in Jesus, they do what is true and they make sure that it is clearly seen and understood that our good works are carried out in God. It is God who works in us, enabling us to do the good works. He has prepared them for us to do and he prepares us to do them. And then he gets all the glory. And that becomes more and more important to God's people as they believe in Jesus. Do you live that way in all of your life, in your vocations, in your church life, in talking with unbelievers? You know, on occasion, I'll have someone come up to me after a sermon and they'll, they'll mention that they thought the sermon was good or it was helpful or meaningful to them in some way. And I always try to say something uh, very similar to this. Well, We'll give thanks to the Lord if that was somehow helpful. And I've wondered over the years when I say that if the perception is that's just a trite, rote, mechanical, repetitive thing that I say without thinking. And it's not. If if God, if the God of all creation chooses to use his word through the work of his spirit to be a blessing or an encouragement or an equipping of God's people through a broken and sinful vessel, then he gets all the glory. And that should be that way for all of us in all of our lives. God's glory should be the thing that we want to see more than anything else. Many of you are familiar with John Bunyan's master allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress. And in it, the hero of the story is Christian. Early in the story, he discovered he had a great need. He had a burden on his back. It was, it was, it was a symbol of his, the weight of his sin. And he knew that he had to avoid perishing in his sins. 
a man named Evangelist spoke to Christian and advised him, fly from the wrath to come. So Christian began running, crying out, life, life, eternal life. And people thought he was crazy. In fact, some tried to stop him. They would run after him and told him that what he was giving up was too much to pursue this eternal life. Christian invited them to come with him. He said, all which you shall forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that that I am seeking to enjoy. I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, and it is laid up in heaven and safe there to be bestowed on them that diligently seek it. Few of his friends would go with him, but he wasn't deterred. He pressed on. Bunyan understood John 3:16 through 21 so well. Christian fled destruction. He fled perishing. He believed in Jesus. He pursued eternal life. And he didn't just go looking and running anywhere for it, but he went to the narrow gate beyond which he could see a light. And as he went through the narrow gate, he came to the light and he looked up and he realized it was a cross. And as he looked at the cross, the weight of his burden on his back slid off forever. And he was given the right to enter into the celestial city, heaven itself. At the, end of, at the end of the journey, as Christian was getting close to the celestial city, angels came to him and said this to him, You are going now to the paradise of God, wherein you shall see the tree of life and eat of the never-fading fruits thereof. You shall have white robes given you, and your walk and talk shall be every day with the king even all the days of eternity. And then Bunyan described Christian and his companions as they walked into the celestial city. And lo, as they entered, they were transfigured and they had raiment put on them that shone like gold. All the bells in the city rang again for joy. And it was said unto them, Enter ye into the joy of your Lord. That will be true. No less true. For all who believe in Jesus, who rest and rely on Him, you will not perish, but you will have life eternal in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us faith to believe these ancient, important, truthful, inspired words. Work in us through the Holy Spirit. Strengthen our faith. Help us to believe the promises of the gospel. Help us to look to Jesus, to believe more deeply in Him, to rest more fully on Him. And by doing, Father, we pray that You would bring us an even greater joy as we look forward to that day when we will enter into the joy of our Savior. We pray it in His name. Amen.